Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. So we're in our series on Revelation, part 23. For you Michael Jordan fans, the number 23 here. We've been working through it all year. And we're seeing in this book over and over again that God is establishing the kingdom of God and directing human history in the person of Jesus. It's an amazing book. Would you agree? It's an amazing book. We have today, chapter 21, and next Sunday, chapter 22, and then we'll be done with Revelation. I had someone come up to me and say, I am so excited to be in the Gospels, right? And we're going to look at the ministry of Jesus after this. But today we're in Revelation 21, and I've shared a little bit, but over the weeks and months, this book has been transformative for me. It's been life-changing to read and to pray, to open it up and say, Lord, I've, I need your help to understand this. Help us make sense of this. And we've seen that really the theme is Jesus is Lord, that the empires of the world, the states, the nations come and go, but as God's people, our eyes are fixed on him. We say around here, he's king, he's Lord, but it's President Jesus as well. Our ultimate allegiance is to him, not a political party, not an ideology. We are people of the kingdom. And this chapter today is going to reiterate that again. Last time we looked at chapter 20, and we looked at the millennium, that thousand-year period, and we talked briefly about how there's different views and interpretations on it. And if you're not careful, you can miss the underlying message of chapter 20. And the underlying message of chapter 20 in the millennium is Jesus will return as king. That's the message. So if we get into the weeds and all the different schools of interpretation, we miss that. Jesus is king. He will, as he already does, rule and reign as king. Satan will be destroyed along with sin and death. Today, we're going to look at chapter 21, and the main theme is all things new. The various songs, the hymns that quote that, the idea of all things being made new comes from this passage, chapter 21, and we're going to look at two sections of this. One deals with a new heaven and a new earth, and the second part deals with a new Jerusalem. And I want us up front here, again, there are lots of details and intricate facets to the passage, but friends, chapter 21 is about God's glorious presence. That's what the chapter is all about. God's glorious presence comes and resides among human beings. There's beauty, there's glory in this passage, and we'll see, we're going to reflect together on some of the amazing realities and promises. 
to be honest here, I've read this this week, and if the whole book of Revelation was written to people who were suffering, who were facing hard times, persecution, martyrdom, why in the world would God give a chapter like 21? And what we're going to see with some rather strange pictures and images and symbols, these are the symbols and the images that God chose to give to a suffering church will make more sense. It's going to fuel worship and empower witness. What I'd like to do this morning, because it's 27 verses, I want to read the first part, the first eight verses, and talk about the new heaven and earth, and then we'll come back and look at verses 9 and following the, the new Jerusalem. Before we do, though, Lord, as Kaylee prayed, we ask for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, and we humble ourselves before you as a church. We humble our hearts and our minds before your holy, powerful, deep, life-changing word, and we ask for you to teach us, to speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation 21, 1 to 8. And let's stand for this first part. I'm going to read these eight verses. We can stand for this. And again, we'll read those eight verses and then comment. So then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death." This is the word of God. You can grab a seat. So we're looking at this first section here about the new heaven and the new earth. This is an Old Testament theme. For those of you that have read the Old Testament prophets, you see in many places, especially in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, chapter 65, the biblical idea that God will, God created Genesis 1 through 3, but God will recreate because of human sin. It's reiterated in the New Testament, isn't it? Romans 8 especially talks about all of creation along with human beings groaning and aching and longing to be set free 
to be redeemed, to be recreated. So this is a theme that runs through all of Scripture, the idea of new creation. This gets really personal, too. We can think of it in those abstract terms, right? God's going to recreate the earth. God's going to recreate the cosmos, the universe. But Paul personalizes it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. So this is incredibly personal, what we're looking at today. And sometimes we can stand back and think, this really isn't that relevant to me. But friends, I want to say this passage is incredibly relevant. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you walk with him and you're filled with his spirit, you are a new creation. You're new. What does that word mean in the original language? New. And we talk about it in baptism, which symbolizes the newness of life. No matter what you've done, in Christ, it is washed off. It is left behind. Just as Christ was buried in the tomb, your previous life with all of the various things that you were into is dead. It is dead. And you are raised through faith in Christ as a new person, a new creation. Friends, this is good news. A new heaven and a new earth filled with new people. And the the power of the kingdom of God is already at work among us. This room is filled with people and with stories. New creation. What we'll see in this passage sometimes, as Amanda and I were talking about this passage, as we do oftentimes, she bears with me and she'll read the passage and then we discuss it. She's like, what? How do we make sense of this? And I say, I don't know. I'm not sure, but we humble ourselves before it and we read and we pray and we read what others have said for hundreds of years about it and we learn a little bit. But we know this new creation follows the pattern of Christ's resurrection. Think about that for a moment. The pattern of his resurrection sets the stage for all of the new creation. Was Christ recognizable when he was raised from the dead. Yes, to some, some of you are saying this, there was something about him that was recognizable, right? But he was glorified in his physical body. So it will be with all of creation. It's not going to completely be done away with, but it will be recognizable. There's something inherently beautiful in what God originally made. And so he's going to recreate it just as Christ's body was raised. So will all of creation experience the resurrection, recreative power of God. One person says this, that as the new covenant is superior to and replaces the old, so the new heaven and new earth will provide a setting for a new and eternal state. So friends, it's going to be amazing. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like and what all it entails. There's rich symbolism that we're going to dig into here, but it will be stunning. And we get a foretaste of it in a personal way as his new creation. In the second part of verse 1 here, starts getting into some of the details here. It says the sea no longer 
exists. It's one of seven things that are no more, including death and mourning and weeping and pain. The sea no longer exists. I read this and I was like, what's the big deal? The sea isn't there anymore. Well, that can be disappointing. I like the sea. I like the ocean. But as you look at the rest of Scripture, because the way to interpret the book of Revelation primarily is with other Scripture. We've encountered this before. There are multiple dimensions to the sea no longer existing. Here's just a few. The sea in the book of Revelation is the origin of worldwide evil. Do you remember where the beast emerged? Where was it from in chapter 13? From the sea. The unbelieving, rebellious nations who cause tribulation for God's people are personified as a sea, a tumultuous sea. Thirdly, the sea no longer existing. It's the place of the dead. If you remember in chapter 20, the sea gave up its dead. Fourthly, the sea no longer existing. It's the primary location, if you remember, of the world's idolatrous trade activity. Do you remember the prostitute, Babylon, chapter 18, owned the sea and used the sea in order to import her wickedness? The sea is no more. And then finally, maybe it's a literal body of water used figuratively to represent part of the old creation. So friends, each one of these verses, these themes, is filled with meaning. When it says the sea no longer exists, that's a good thing. The city descends from heaven. Look at verse 2. John understands what he's seeing here in the vision. All of the various Old Testament prophecies. Jerusalem is being called by a new name. Isaiah 62, this applies to the new covenant people of God the new covenant, heavenly Jerusalem. The rest of verse two, this new Jerusalem, this new city is adorned like what? Prepared as a bride, dressed, adorned to meet her husband. This again is another thread that runs through the whole of scripture and it conveys, as Brad was singing about this morning, God's intimate covenant relationship with his beloved people. The closeness, the faithfulness, the absolute commitment on the part of God and Christ to us. Never breaking covenant. Never breaking his word. He's loyal to us. He's faithful. And he expects the same from us. And he gives us the power to be faithful and loyal to him. One person says this. This just leapt off the page at me about this. We're like the bride. Throughout history, God is forming his people to be his bride so that they will reflect his glory throughout the ages to come. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. Friends, that's us. God is absolutely determined. And whatever he determines, he accomplishes for us to be prepared to meet him, to form us as his beautiful, glorious bride, clothed in his grace and mercy. And friends, there's nothing here uh, strange. Oftentimes we think in these concepts in, in ways that we kind of taint them with human experience. 
There's nothing sexual here. This is one of the main reasons that Islam misunderstands Christianity is because it literalizes things like this and says God has no bride. Allah has no bride. You're missing the point. These are figures of speech. These are symbols. These are metaphors. Our human experience is but a tiny little picture into God's absolute passion and covenant love for his people. And we need to make sure that we realize that. This is filled with holiness and purity and glory and the best of human experience between a man and a woman is just a a tiny little dim reflection of how committed to us and how much God loves us. This will melt your heart. This will change you to think that we together and individually are the bride of Christ. There's nothing more beautiful, more intimate, more powerful than that image, but it's holy and pure. The voice speaks from the throne. Look at verse 3 and 4. And again, this is what we do each week. We read a text and then we walk through it. And then you go home during the week and you meditate on the word of God. So each Sunday we meditate on the word of God together. Verse 3. God speaks from the throne. God makes his home among his people. Verse 3 says this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see the home of God is among men and women. God will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. Again, this was prophesied in scripture as far back as Leviticus 26. Listen to what Leviticus says in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. I will place my dwelling in your midst and I will walk among you. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Nothing more rewarding for the people of God. And like God's presence and glory was with Israel during the desert wanderings, so God makes his presence, his home among us now. This is why we're worshiping on a Sunday, isn't it? It's not because we like to just sing good songs and have a meet and greet, we are celebrating and worshiping and having our lives reoriented around the fact that God has made his home among us. And there is something that's incredibly important about gathering together. Yes, he resides in each of us. Paul makes that abundantly clear in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6. We individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God makes his home inside of us, but then together we're living stones being built up together. And one day, as we'll see in the rest of this passage, he is going to make a permanent, recognizable, universal home among his people. And it's stunning. Some of the language here is used because John wrote the fourth gospel, and John wrote this Revelation, he recorded it, smacks of what we hear in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwells among his people, showing the glory of God the Father. And here, John is seeing in the vision the ultimate empowerment for God's people. God's glorious presence is with you now 
and forever will be. Verses four and following here. Human troubles are no more part of what happens with God moving in in a decisive way is that the effects of sin and death are abolished. Tears, death, crying, pain. And friends, God's presence is always the answer to human suffering and pain. How many of you have got a little bit of pain in your heart right now? God's presence is the answer. And there's something that he leaves to us to come into his presence each day. Sometimes he will just come over us in his grace and mercy and love, but he expects us to come into his presence, to read his word each day, and it's only in that place, and oftentimes with other people and fellowship that we're changed and transformed, and that suffering makes enough sense to live another day. Friends, God's presence is the answer. God's pre- the presence of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the only answer to your suffering and pain. It's the only answer to your brokenness, to my brokenness, the presence of the living God. And that's what this passage is reminding us, the presence, the glory of God Almighty. There's seven declarations made here in verses five through eight. We've encountered that number before, right? Seven, completeness, perfection. Just want to look at a few of these quickly and then we'll look at verses 9 through 27. One person about these seven declarations says this, embattled churches of the 21st century and the 1st century, whether intimidated by oppression or beguiled by societal seduction, need to realize that these promises of God are more certain than all that their eyes can see or perceive. So friends, here is an example. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God is what lasts forever. So we take passages like this, these seven declarations, and we meditate on them, and we give ourselves to them, and we say, Lord, my life may not line up with this. My life is a mess. I'm a wreck. Things are falling apart, but I stand on the word of God. This is the truth. This is the only sure foundation, and this section is full of it, full of truth to stand on. Verse five, all things new. We've looked a little bit at what that means. God only speaks three times directly in this whole book, Revelation, and this is one of those moments. And where is it he's speaking from? Verse three, where's he speaking from? Speaking from the throne. So he is sovereign. He is king. He is Lord. He's ruling over your life, my life, over all of human history. So when he says all things are new, all things are being made new. And friends, this is something that will happen one day. We don't know when, but we get a taste of it now. That's part of being kingdom people, the already and the not yet. All things are being made new. Verse 5 says, this is a trustworthy and true message. The book of Revelation has already said that Jesus himself 
is trustworthy and true in chapters 1 and 3 and 4. It's also said of his followers. The followers of Jesus are viewed as trustworthy and true in chapter 17. It's also used of God himself here and in 15 and 16. This is a beautiful phrase here. Look at verse 6. It is finished. This was used previously when God judged his enemies and delivered his people in chapter 16. But here it speaks of the absolute fulfillment of God's promises to rescue, to transform, to satisfy, to provide close fellowship for his people. And it's all anchored in the name of God. Look at verse 6. He is the Alpha and the Omega. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the equivalent of A to Z. And what it's suggesting here is that God is the goal. God is everything in between. God is the totality of it all. And he can be relied upon. Only he can be trusted. It underscores his absolute sovereignty to rule our lives with kindness and to establish his kingdom. Verse 6, a fifth thing that the text tells us that we can stand on is there's living water for the thirsty. This is based on Isaiah 55.1 that says this, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Friends, God alone satisfies It's what this text is saying, and we'll see it again in chapter 22. There is a river of life that flows from the very presence of God, from the throne of God, and it's what human beings have longed and thirsted and ached for since the beginning of the story. Genesis 1 and 2 makes that clear. Only God satisfies. There's something insatiable inside of each of us. And that can be misdirected in different directions. Might be secret addictions that no one knows about. Friends, only God can satisfy. It might be materialistic things, which I've battled trying to get disentangled from as a recovering hoarder of things. I've shared that, those of you that are close enough, I like shoes, I like stuff. And I feel like God working inside of me saying, I alone satisfy. It's okay to have some of those things, be generous, but Brock, I alone satisfy. Even some of the silly things like that. I want the Lord to clean house with me. Anyone else want some house cleaning right now? And the answer to that is not gritting our teeth and saying, woe is me. I'm pathetic. I'm distracted. I'm a hoarder. The answer is, Lord, I look to you to satisfy me in a very practical way. Keep me from clicking whatever it is to buy the new thing. I I need to be in your presence. Help me give more. Help me to be more generous. Friends, he provides the living water for the thirsty. And behind all of those things is a thirst. Would you agree? All the things that we look to all the little silly addictions and things. We need more addiction to God. We need more holy addiction 
to the Lord and his word because all of those other trivial things will leave you even thirstier, even emptier. He promises at verse 7 an inheritance for conquerors. This is one of the key purposes of the whole book, friends, to empower Christians to persevere and endure. I don't think we talk about this enough, do we? When's the last time you heard someone say endurance is really important? Perseverance is important. Friends, one of the things that the text says over and over again, that all 22 chapters says, persevere. That's a tough word, isn't it? Because oftentimes we want to say, you don't know where I am in life right now. I can hardly get out of bed. And the grace of God says, I will help you endure. I will give you the mercy that you need so that each day when your feet hit the floor, there's new mercy. The word of God says there's new love and new mercy for each day. Perseverance. Lord, give us perseverance and endurance. I'm going to skip the seventh one there. Let's do this. I want us to take one minute and then we're going to come back and look at New Jerusalem. Friends, I want you to see how fascinating this stuff is. The word of God is the most interesting thing given to us. I've I've said it before, the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus is the most interesting person to ever live. And the word of God, the gift of chapters like this is equally interesting. So I want us to clear our minds for a moment here and then we'll come back and look at the new Jerusalem and we'll end with some ministry time. So let's take a minute and then I'll come back. You can sit there awkwardly or you can chat with the person next to you. Sounds like some of you are having too much fun out there. I'm hearing some stories, some laughter, it's good. Why do I do that? Because sometimes chapters like this are like a fire hydrant in our face. I mean, there is so much here, it's so rich, there's so many layers that we just gotta take a breather, we gotta gulp for a minute. But I don't wanna lay off. I want us to walk through it and see some things maybe we've never seen before. I'm going to read beginning at verse 9. We're going to make some comments about the new Jerusalem. Then we're going to have some ministry based on the presence of God, a little bit of response and worship. So looking at verse 9 here, chapter 21. We've seen the new heaven and earth. And now, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the Spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, 
like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city has 12 foundations. And on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. The wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl. And the street of the city is pure gold, transparent as glass. Look at this, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. My goodness, could we have two or three weeks to look at this, but just in a few minutes, I want to point out some of the things that, frankly, I was learning about the passage over the last week that are fascinating, life-giving, gospel truth. We see at verse 9 that an angel comes and invites John to see the bride. This is one of the angels who appeared earlier, who was involved in the judgment and deliverance John is transported in the Spirit. Have you heard that before? We've seen it beginning at chapter 1 and verse 4. All of this is made possible by the ministry, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what happens here, John begins to see the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the city, and it's contrasted with the fake church, the fake people of God, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Where's this bride coming from? Descending from heaven, pure. She liberates and unifies the nations, contrasted with the prostitute that we encountered in earlier chapters, who emerges from the earth, from down below. She was evil. She seduced the nations, the opposite of what we're seeing here. 
The bride city symbolizes the saints. One commentator says, listen to this, the church in its end time beauty, the luminous wedding gown given to the bride by her groom has already been interpreted as the righteous acts of the saints. And all the details of the city's appearance illustrate aspects of the church's loveliness in the eyes of God. Friends, we're lovely. We're beautiful in the eyes of God. What does this represent, the new Jerusalem? Us. In short, the new Jerusalem, the city, is a symbol of the redeemed people of God. It's glorious. There's an external description of the city in verses 11 through 21, and then there's an internal description of the city. I'm going to go right to verses 18 to 21 and make a few comments here because I think it's pretty mind-blowing. I know, again, there's a lot of info in this, that hydrant of truth. But friends, if we'll dig a little bit at verse 18, the building materials here, some of you are going, ah, that was probably the most boring part of it. You read 12 stone names and I tuned out about the sandwich, the lunch I'm going to eat. Right? I kind of did that as I read it. I was like, be sure to pronounce these correctly. Friends, there is rich truth in here. These 12 stones represent some things. There's nothing haphazard in the word of God. These visions as they came to John are full of eternal truth and meaning. There's a wall that's built of jasper. The jasper stone symbolizes God seated on the throne. The jasper symbolized the glory around him in chapter four. It's a city of pure gold, material that reflects the glory of God. The first century readers probably would have remembered the front of Herod's temple that was pure gold and reflected the sun. But this entire Jerusalem, this new city, is made of gold. I put this up here. I want you to look up there and see because there's some beautiful colors here. A whole assortment, a variety, a rainbow of, of colors. Catch this though. These gems correspond to the breastplate of the high priest. So there you see on the left the stones, all 12 that are mentioned here that are laid, and then on the right there the, the breastplate that the high priest would have worn into the very holy of holies. And so you know what the text is saying here, friends? The holy of holies is open for everyone. Not once a year, not for the one single high priest to enter after much preparation, but friends, the whole city is the holy of holies. Friends, you are part of the holy of holies because of the blood of the Lamb of God. So we are God's new covenant people and not only are, is the, the temple opened up, but now God resides among us. The holy God, 
The Lord God, the Almighty, the creator of all things, lives among his people and makes us all, as chapter 1 says, a kingdom of priests with access into his presence 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Friends, let's rediscover this. This week, you have access into the presence of the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit residing in you makes you the Holy of Holies. Now live into it. Live into that. Friends, this is absolutely mind-blowing. And I'm talking to the young people as well. There's no age parameters on this. You can't be too young and you can't be too old. The Holy of Holies is open to a five-year-old, a six-year-old. And so young people, spend time with Jesus each day. Read a psalm. Read the book of John. Read it with a friend. Read it with a parent. Friends, we are bored oftentimes. And if we will get into the word of God and say, Lord, would you work this into my heart? Would you open my mind and heart to understand this? He will from the youngest to the oldest. We're going to end in just a moment. I want to point out one other thing with these stones that could come across as rather boring. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They are on the breastplate of the high priest. This is bizarre. They also may also correspond to the signs of the zodiac. There's 12 of them, right? Some of you are going, where are you going with this, Brock? But they're in reverse order. The signs of the zodiac also had stones that represented things. So in this vision of these stones, not only is God reinforcing the fact that the whole city is the Holy of Holies, the people of God from all nations, from all time, coming and being united with Christ, that's the Holy of Holies. But God is also saying that all pagan mythologies... All sense of depending on the stars or anything else is an absolute joke. And this text reverses it. Isn't that fascinating? So the word of God is full of truth and the word of God subverts the ideas of Satan down to a T. And the early first century readers, because of their knowledge of these things and on ancient inscriptions and all, they would have most likely picked up on this. God guides human destiny, not the stars, not any false gods, not the Roman Empire, not the American Empire. God alone guides human destiny and we are part of his kingdom. We are clothed with Christ and this text makes it clear to us that God is making all things new. Why don't we stand? And again, I want to encourage you with access to the presence of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit of the living God to spend time daily with the Lord. Some of you might need to come up with some fresh approaches to that. Some of you might need to meet with someone else in order to do that.
some of you younger ones may need to ask someone in the church, hey, will you show me how to read the Bible and interact with God? Because I'm praying that we will have a reemergence of hungry and thirsty people from the youngest to the oldest among us. As John says, eat the scroll. Do you remember that in chapter 10? It was the Lord's command to him. So I want us as a church to be those who eat the scroll, who eat the word of God, who ingest his truth every day and have ongoing living interaction with, with Jesus. So Lord, we ask for that. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would release a holy hunger among us, that we would just find ourselves gripped with a new appetite, a new thirst, a new hunger for your presence, Lord. Your presence is, is what we need. Your presence, your glory. So we ask for an invasion, a breakthrough of your presence in the coming days and weeks. We love you, Lord. We love you. We receive your love today. Amen. So why don't we have ministry team come forward. I know there was mention of several of them being sick, so we may need to get some reserves up here. Come up here and pray for people. And I will say this, in a couple weeks, you're going to want to be up here because we are asking God to do things with a ministry team. We're going to revisit the model of Jesus, how he prayed for people, how he expected the power of the Holy Spirit to touch people in their bodies. So if you want to be on the ministry team, you can send me an email or, or Connie an email. We want people mobilized in our church. I'm going to ask some of the young people too, some of you high schoolers that were up here, get up here and pray. We're going to build out on that, right? That's not a flash in the pan, but we expect our youth to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We expect the Lord to raise up and mobilize lots of young people in the coming days.